0: Some time ago on one of my uh, overseas trips, I happened to be chatting with uh, one of the individuals there. She was a single woman who was uh, leading a team of people in the particular country that she was working in. And uh, somehow our topic turned to the subject of hope and we were talking about uh, things like that. And then I'm not quite sure how the conversation went in the direction that it did. But she kind of uh, semi-jokingly referred to a comment that, Uh, One of her older colleagues had made to her, uh, and the words were something like this, Well, my dear, there's still hope for you. Uh, Obviously referring to the fact that she was still single. The, The mindset that produces those kinds of comments is quite alive and well in North America, including our churches. Last September, you might recall, we had our dedication services and people gave certain testimonies. And I think two or three of the testimonies in one service had to do with how God led people to uh, finding a spouse. Shortly after that, I got an email from somebody in this congregation. And I have her permission to share some extracts from this. And this is what she said. She said, as one of the many single people at Rexdale, I really feel that those two testimonies implied that as singles were simply to abandon their desire for a relationship, one would come along. Implicit in this statement is the attitude that singleness is not wholeness or godliness, that only when one has become a member of a couple can one experience true joy. I expect that this message was not in the hearts or minds of either of the sharers, but nonetheless it was the message that was received by myself, one of my single friends, and I suspect others who fall into the same category. It is also a message that many of us have been receiving subversively from the evangelical church since we were infants. And around about the same time I got another email from another single gal in our congregation because I was just beginning that series on God's blueprint for marriage. And she said, can you please address this subject? She also was struggling with it. I couldn't at that time, but I promised her that I would. And that time has come now. And today and next week, I want to just pick up that study on God's blueprint. Today we're going to look at God's blueprint for singleness as I develop together with you a biblical theology of singlehood. And then next week I want to continue the subject of marriage. But both of them in the light of the Lenten season that we are in. And relating them very specifically to Christ's suffering as well. Not in any obvious way, but you will see it running right through. I first began to put some of these thoughts together in my own mind in the late 80s. And then as I began to teach it in various settings in the 90s, I kept sharpening it. And then over this last few months, as I've been listening to a whole series of messages on on marriage by John Piper, a few more pieces of the puzzle fell into place. So this this is my best understanding of what I think the scriptures teach systematically on the subject of singlehood. And again, I want to hold before you that metaphor that I've been keeping before you for several months now, to see ourselves as actors and actresses in a divine drama of redemption, of which the Bible is the script. <clears throat> and the better we understand the first four Acts, and Acts 5, scene 1, uh, Act 1 being creation, Act 2, the fall, Act 3, Israel, Act 4, Jesus, and Act 5, scene 1 is the writing of the New Testament, the better and more appropriately we will be able to get our cues to live wisely in Act 5, Scene 2, which is where you and I are, only this time specifically in this issue of singlehood and marriage. So let's begin. Let's begin with uh, the singlehood in the Old Testament. And we want to begin with Act 1, creation. For after God created Adam and Eve, He looked at them and He said, uh, it was very good. And so marriage at the very beginning of the Bible is spoken of as being extremely good. Then in the second chapter, still in the act, still in what we've called Act One of the drama of redemption, uh, the story of Adam and Eve's creation is amplified. And after Adam is created, but before Eve, God says, It is not good for Adam to be alone. So marriage is very good, and aloneness was not good. And after he had created them, he blessed the first couple and he told them to multiply and be fruitful. And so childbearing was seen as portrayed as an essential, not absolutely only, but an essential purpose in marriage. <clears throat> so much so that throughout the life of Israel, barrenness was considered a real disgrace. In the sense that the blessing of children was withheld. <clears throat> and we see this as late in the development as in the book of Luke. Where Zachariah's wife Elizabeth, when she discovers that she's pregnant in old age... These are her words. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So to become pregnant was a sign of God's favor and and barrenness was a disgrace among the people of God. The other thing we learn as we continue now to the rest of Israel's story and move into Act 3 of the drama of redemption, we see that God built his people, ethnic Israel, almost exclusively through physical reproduction. Not only, but almost exclusively through physical reproduction. For when he called Abraham, he said, I'm going to make your seed as numerous as the stars of the sky and as numerous as the sand upon the seashore. Uh, That was reinforced uh, to Isaac and that was reinforced to Jacob. Not surprisingly, singlehood was not even on the radar screen of the community of God's people in the Old Testament. And there is one particular um, command, if you will, that God ordained for Israel through Moses that reinforces and powerfully illustrates all four of these assertions. Uh, The technical name for it is called the Leveret marriage. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 to 6, we read these words. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son... His widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. There was no choice in this matter. In fact, if the brother-in-law refused to do this, he was publicly shamed by the entire community. You can go on and read about it. Notice the double mention of the name. The first son she bears shall carry the name, not of the father, but of the brother, so that his name will not be blotted out. The the continuation of a name was so critical. It reinforces all these principles. Marriage is good, childbearing is essential, God grows his people through biological reproduction, and singlehood is not even on the radar screen of the Christian community. One last observation, but but the immediate relevance of this to what I'm talking about will not be seen right away. Bear with me as I continue to develop this for you, but it will tie in very, very crucially. One last thing we see in the Old Testament, evangelism was not a primary means of growing God's people. Yes, people from other nations called God-fearers did join themselves to the community of Israel. They were attracted by the wisdom of God's people through their obedience to God's lofty laws and they were attracted by the worship of Israel in contrast to the idolatrous, uh, often immoral worship practices of the pagan nations. But it was up to them to do it. Israel was never commanded to go out and evangelize anybody. And so when you put all of these things together, It's pretty clear that any singles around were marginalized. And there was tremendous societal and religious pressure to live within this kind of understanding of singlehood. But buried buried in the midst of this near uniform teaching in the Old Testament are two brilliant rays of light that shine all the brighter because of the darkness of the background of God's spectacular purpose for people who were single. We find it in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 56 verses 4 and 5. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, and eunuchs are those who for various reasons were not able to uh, consummate a relationship and procreate. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. In sharp contrast to that levirate marriage provision, where the name of the brother had to be communicated, twice God says, I will give to these people who are not able to have children, who don't fit into this mold, a name that is better and everlasting compared to sons and daughters. How is it made possible? There's another clue. Just two, three chapters before. They all come together in this cluster of, of chapters in Isaiah. It's all because of one particular Israelite. Who introduces a whole new way of having children. That has nothing to do with physical creation. Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Now we know this is Jesus. They didn't. He's the suffering servant. Uh, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, notice these words, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. This suffering servant will produce offspring not through procreation but through suffering. And it is because of him, these eunuchs, Have this amazing hope. And so though the uniform teaching in the Old Testament. Has singlehood not even on the radar screen. There are these two. Shining lights. That tell us God had something. Pretty spectacular in mind. For singles. And so we now move to the fourth act. In the history of redemption. And look at this particular person. What he had to say. What did Jesus have to say about singlehood. Well first of all. Just by merely Showing up. He rewrote the book. Because now. The only complete and perfect human being this world has ever seen. Was single. That immediately says singlehood is good. Very good. Old Testament says marriage is very good. Jesus by his very presence says singlehood is good. And now singlehood rather than not even be on the radar screen. Is now front and center in the people of God. That's the first thing that we see. So marriage now is no longer necessary for somebody to be complete and whole before God. Secondly, we discover that God in the New Testament builds His people through spiritual regeneration and a relationship with Jesus. Biological reproduction is no longer the primary means for building the body of Christ. It plays a role, but it is subsumed under this larger purpose. And Jesus said some very staggering things to that community. They don't stagger us because we're in a community where singlehood is Considered, okay, in spite of all these comments that every now and then leak out. But in that culture, with that background that I just painted for you, some of the statements Jesus made would have been almost scandalous. For example, on one occasion, uh, in fact the point that Jesus made was that this spiritual family that is put together by regeneration of the Holy Spirit, this Zion that we celebrated at the beginning of our service, is more fundamental and foundational than the physical family formed by procreation. For example, we read in Matthew chapter 12. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples with whom he had no biological connection, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You have to feel, to think for a minute, to feel the sledgehammer blow of a statement like this to a culture like that is there any stronger biological bond than between a mother and her child there isn't one and Jesus says that is trumped by these individuals relationship to me shown by their obedience to my commandments and then he makes another important point this levered marriage that I told you about, the Sadducees, who were a priestly class, who didn't believe in the resurrection, thought they would really stump Jesus with a the question. They said, hey Jesus, remember this thing that God gave us in the Old Testament where the brother-in-law of a dead man had to marry the widow in order, if, he, if he died childless? Well, what, what if there were seven brothers? And what if each one of them died in turn without having a child? So they now had seven brothers married to this one woman. Whose wife will she be? Uh, They weren't really interested in the answer. Their hope was to prove by this question that there was no such thing as resurrection. Well, that brought forth a pretty stinging rebuke from Jesus when he said, you are hopelessly mistaken. Why? He said, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And then he said, in heaven, they are neither given nor received in marriage. You know what that says about marriage? Marriage is a temporary arrangement. Marriage is a temporary arrangement to point to a far greater reality. And we're going to look at that next week. But in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, In the midst of a long statement on marriage, what does he say? I am speaking about Jesus and the church. That's the reality. This is temporary. Marriage is temporary and points to Christ. Now, If this is the case, if this is the case, we have a staggering implications for singles. Single people can now have spiritual children and contribute to the building of the far more important permanent family of God. A fourth difference, and again I told you, you need to wait with me until I make the connections. Evangelism now becomes a major means by which God grows His people. Now there is a positive command to go to the nations. And He said, go out into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them. The purpose of, and with the first mark of making disciples was to baptize them. And baptism was that outward ritual that shows what? That you are now not just isolated, you are part of a community. It all had to do with coming into this new family. And it is in this context that Jesus makes another staggering remark about singles. On one occasion, he's talking to his disciples about marriage, and he talks about the permanence of marriage, and the disciples say, Wow, well, in that case, maybe we shouldn't get married at all. And then Jesus says this. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage. in the original, it simply says, have become made themselves eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven. Now, eunuchs are those that, uh, as I said to you, are not able to reproduce and have children. Some are born because of physical uh, disabilities, are not able to do that. Others have been made eunuchs by men. Uh, ancient Near Eastern kings would often do that to the people who looked after the harems for obvious reason. But he says some people, some people in the kingdom of God, because of the kingdom of God, choose to remain single for the sake of the kingdom. And so now, singlehood can actually become a deliberate choice for some for the sake of advancing the kingdom. Look at what Jesus has done for singlehood. Set this against the background of what we learned from the Old Testament. (laughs) He said singlehood is good. He has taken the focus of physical procreation to spiritual regeneration and the building of the family of God. And therefore, singlehood now becomes a very, very powerful force and even a choice in building this family. So if we put Moses and Jesus together, here's our doctrine developing a little bit more. Both marriage and singlehood are good. Needs to be our opening statement. Secondly, one of the purposes in marriage still remains having children, but barrenness is no longer a curse or a disgrace, because spiritual children are the key to growing God's family. So people who are married but have been denied children, that's not a, not a curse from God at all. It might be a, it, the, the opportunity to continue to build the kingdom of God is still very alive. And thirdly, so singles can now have spiritual children and contribute to the building up of God's family, and in fact can actually choose singlehood over marriage. <clears throat> Again, for that culture in which Jesus was living in, this was such a huge, huge, significant development. And it is this last dimension of choosing singlehood that we now come to the Apostle Paul, the fifth act in the drama of redemption, Paul writing, and especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You need to read that whole chapter. Some of it is a bit confusing, but uh, I want to just hit the main, the highlights for you. He begins, first of all, by saying, it's good for a man not to marry. Paul goes one step further. <laughs> he says, you thought marriage was good? I'm telling you, Jesus said singlehood was good. I'm telling you, it's actually better. Now why? Why does he say that? Now this is where my comments on evangelism become important. Remember I told you in the Old Covenant, Israel was never asked to go out and positively evangelize the nations. So she never never was persecuted for obeying God. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you will find a remarkable situation that God's people in the Old Testament, so long as they obeyed God, were always blessed. Their difficulties came only when they disobeyed God. But if you look at the New Testament, you find that's no longer the case. And it is directly, in many cases, related to proclaiming the gospel. They now have the cross looming large over them. And so now the people of God suffer, not just when they disobey, but even when they obey, and sometimes precisely because they obey. Taking the gospel to the difficult parts of the world opens you up for persecution, trials and testings of all kinds, which is part of entrance. And in that setting, because now evangelism is a dangerous enterprise, in some cases singlehood confers some advantages over married couples. That's probably what Jesus was talking about when he said, they will choose singlehood for the sake of the kingdom of God. At the same time, Paul says, not everybody can do it. Just like Jesus said, whoever is is given it can receive it. Paul says, I wish all men were as I am, because of this mission, because of the danger involved in the mission. He said, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Which, of course, immediately raises the question, how do you decide? How do you decide? If if both are good, uh, and singlehood in some cases actually may have an advantage, uh, let me just kind of put this in the form of a diagram. It kind of summarizes the essence of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. You know, there are all kinds of gift surveys you can take to find out whether you have the gift of teaching or hospitality. There's no gift surveys to fig- figure this one out. I think Paul has given us a way of making wise decisions in this. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you said Paul puts mission front and center. it. Verses 29 to 35, and here are some of the verses from there. He says, What I mean, brothers, after all this talk, is that the time is short. There's an urgency. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. So he said, Forget about this business of singlehood versus marriage. Even if you're married, you should, you should live as if you were not. And what does he mean by that? For this world in its present form is passing away. Remember, we said marriage is temporary. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. And then he says the same thing about a married woman. And then he finishes by saying, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So whether you're married or whether you're single, says Paul, now that the end time has come in Jesus... Given the centrality of this mission that is before us, undivided loyalty to Christ and wholehearted engagement in the mission is central, whether you're single or whether you're married. In that context, he says, both singlehood and marriage have certain advantages and disadvantages. Or distractions, you might call them. For example, some of the advantages without stereotyping or without making this universal for everybody, there are some advantages that single people have or can have, uh, when it comes, by and large, when it comes to mission. First of all, there's flexibility. Uh, not, not necessarily tied to anybody else in most cases, although some are, by virtue of choices they've made to care for other people, for example. There's greater flexibility. Uh, I can't very easily decide tomorrow that I'm going to go to Turkey for the next 10 years. I have a wife to talk about. Talk about that. If I was single, I only have to think about myself in most cases. There's there's likely to be greater freedom from the kind of uh, commitments that tie us down. Probably far more married couples own homes and mortgages than single people do. And then this issue of danger. If God is calling us into a dangerous place, without having a wife or children that can be captured and kidnapped and held hostage, you're probably a little bit freer to go into some more dangerous areas. But there are big distractions too or challenges. There's the challenge of loneliness, unmet sexual, legitimate sexual desires, frustration, and if you're a woman, a biological clock is ticking, and the nesting instinct can become a distraction. So those are the disadvantages. Now what about a married person? Married couples have some legitimate advantages. There's a legitimate outlet for sexual expression. There's the comfort of companionship. There is encouragement and enrichment mutually in ministry, together, or they can be, uh, and the joy of having children. Grandchildren for the stage in which I'm in right now. But there are some pretty significant disadvantages too. Disadvantages in terms of distractions, as far as the mission is concerned. Uh, that there's time and energy for spouse and children, which is what Paul talks about. Uh, Vijay and Jen have been away for four days in Florida at a business thing. He's been away for a whole week, so Jen joined him. So Sheila has Noah, and we've had Joel for the last three days. <laughs> Boy, it's busy. <laughs> and I'd forgotten what it was like when my children were young. Yeah. Well, there's a tremendous, you know, sick children, running them off to hospital, not enough sleep in the middle of the night. These don't leave a lot of energy for ministry at times. They are legitimate. And then, remember, just the fact that you're married, it might give you a, a perfectly legitimate outlet for sexual expression, but as we've been learning, sexual intimacy is not possible without emotional, intellectual, and spiritual intimacy. Those things take massive amounts of time for something that doesn't take a lot of time. Inflexibility. You've got commitments. You've got children in high school or coming up to high school. You can't quickly move. You've got to consider what effect. There's a little poor boy in India saying, I don't have a friend yet. What will happen if that stage continues? What if he gets more difficult? What if the girls can't handle the situation they're in? Well, these are all uh, difficulties that come up the way that single people in that sense may not have. And then, of course, there's permanence. You know, so long as you're single, you, you, can, you can date a prospect. You can go for a date with him. You can dream about meeting the ideal person. If you're married, all dating stops. Except for that one person. You can't even think. You shouldn't be thinking about anybody else. This person is it. All of those things are real distractions. So what Paul is saying is, let's get practical, folks. The mission is central. Whether you're single or whether you're married, there are significant advantages for the sake of the kingdom of God in either case. And there are some undeniable challenges and frustrations. And all he's saying is, in some cases, and it varies from person to person, and it may even vary with time for the same person. In some cases, at some times, an individual may conclude that they can actually handle the distractions of being singlehood in a way that glorifies Christ better than the way they can handle the distractions. For me, it's been very clear the other way around. I have I've had very little trouble handling the difficult, the downsides of marriage to the glory of God. I think given who I am and what knowledge I have of myself, I'd have a much, much harder time handling the challenges of singlehood in a way that glorifies God. But others are the other way around. So that's probably what he's talking about. And a great example, have you ever read Jim Elliott, Shadow of the Almighty? You know, he was, he was a passionate man. He passionately climbed mountains in the middle of the night and went fishing in the Amazon River. And he fell passionately in love with Elizabeth Elliot. And he wanted to marry her. His whole body, soul and spirit was longing to marry this woman. But he wouldn't. Not until he got to the jungles of Amazon. Not until he could get a clear handle of what mission it was. Not until he could be absolutely convinced that marriage would in fact be a help in this mission. Until then he refused to propose to her. He was a man who lived out this kind of principle. All right. now let's therefore combine Moses, Jesus and Paul together to get what I think is a fairly complete theology of singlehood in the scriptures. Both marriage and singlehood are good. One of the purposes in marriage still remains having children, but barrenness is no longer a curse or disgrace because spiritual children are the key to growing God's family. So singles can now have spiritual children and contribute to the building up of God's family and in fact can actually choose singlehood over marriage. And then fourthly, the focus in either state is loving service to Christ while choosing the distractions that you can better handle to honor Christ. Okay, let me now... Okay, so now... We've covered the drama of redemption. What about 2008, March 8th or 9th? How do we as single and married couples, taking our cues from this survey of 3,000 years of history, or 4,000 years of history, what does it mean to live wisely? Let me speak to the singles first, and then I'll speak to the marrieds after that. First of all, for singles, all it says is that some of you, maybe not many, but some of you will actually joyfully choose to maintain your single status in life. Not because it's easy and you can spend a lot more money on going on vacations and all that kind of stuff. Although that may be true. But it is because it is a wise choice that says for the sake of the advantages conferred on advancing the kingdom of God, I will choose to be single. Most of you may still want to get married, but it will no longer be the kind of thing that cripples you. The same gal who wrote that email to me went on to say this. She said, I fail to understand why that or singleness should be so devastating to us. I trust God to be in control of my future. I trust God to be in control of my present. He has placed me here as a 30-year-old single and I love it. I'm happy. Life is good. God is good. I don't need a relationship, and she means specifically a marriage relationship, to make me feel more complete, whole, or godly. I'm not currently biding my time until God sends me a relationship. This is it. If there is a relationship in the future, so be it. If not, that's okay too. It took me a long time to come to peace with regards to my singleness, but I have. What she is saying is what I've tried to say to you before, single people. Do not see marriage as the end of some journey that you're on, that you're waiting for. So you can have children and have this person in your life. No, no, no. Marriage, if it happens in your life, needs to be seen as a critically important choice along the way of a journey that you've already started right now and are living. And that is this journey of loving service and devotion to Christ and being engaged meaningfully in the advancement of Christ's gospel. Then, if you do, you are far more likely to choose the kind of person, like Jim Elliot did, that will be in perfect harmony with that cause that God has for you. I had another gal who shared this email, and I have her permission to share this too, of what she felt was a fairly disturbing observation she was making. She said, she's talking about some of her colleagues. She said, they are wholeheartedly devoted to following Jesus and are seeking a partner with the same heart for God. They've been waiting for some time for that partner to come along and are now beginning to creep into their early and mid-thirties. And the frustration and doubting that they should be waiting is creeping in with this passing time. And then she adds this, I will admit that I am in this group, and while frustration and doubt tempt me each day, I continue to cling to the hope that God rewards those who wait by enabling us to soar on wings like eagles. They love the Lord, she says, of her colleagues, but have allowed the frustration of the wait, coupled with the pressures from both the church and the world, to get married. And this has resulted in them marrying either nominal Christians or non-Christians. Since getting married, they have struggled. They had no idea it would be this hard to be with a person with a different relationship with God or none at all. In short, they entered into marriage regarding it more as a contract and over time are seeing it for the covenant that it truly is and they are almost overwhelmed at the problems they are experiencing. As Rexdale has quite a large singles group, I am finding more and more that we as singles simply don't understand the critical significance of choosing a partner wisely and not settling for anything less than God's best for us. Very wise words from one of your own. And I would encourage you, please, don't settle for anything else. And this was driven home to me this past week as I was praying my way through Buzz and Myrna's latest prayer letter. Some of you know they work in and Jaya and they had a couple from North America visiting them and Myrna says in this letter that uh, one morning she and Buzz took this couple and were taking them to the lowlands, picking up evangelists and dropping them off in very, very remote areas. And she said at one point while the plane was lifting off over the earphones of the mouthpiece, she said, I looked at Buzz and said, Buzz, I wouldn't have wanted to spend Valentine's Day any other way. And she said, he looked at me with a wink in his eye and smiled and we both took off. And I thought, wow. Just was sitting at home hoping that somebody forgot something special on Valentine's Day. She said, this mission is what joins us together. That's important. It's not that the other isn't important. But this is crucial. All right, married couples. I need to say a few words to you to live wisely. Number one, please don't ever say to a single, honey, there's hope for you yet. Number two, don't even think it. Because you say it, because you think it. Renew your mind around a biblical theology of singlehood, so you will never be condescending towards singles again, or ever see them as second-rate citizens who have somehow missed the boat in any way at all. Instead, instead, and here's the key, and this is really for both of you, practice hospitality to one another. One of the implications of this fact that we are a new family and where the spiritual family trumps the biological family, one of the implications is that God is calling, Christ is calling both singles and marriages, to show the kind of hospitality to one another broadly defined, that celebrates before a world that knows nothing about it, that there is another kind of family that is eternal, that is guaranteed to last forever, that is far more important than the biological family. Yes, the Bible speaks about our household being important, but the New Testament has a lot more to say about the household of faith. And you know what? It is entirely possible and even appropriate that you will find yourself more deeply connected to a brother or sister in the Lord who is not biologically connected to you than you are to some people with whom you may be biologically connected as well and that's as it should be because the spiritual family is the eternal family so be alert be alert married couples to all those opportunities special times of celebrations, special days, special occasions to make space for single people But please don't do it condescendingly. As as one of my friends told me, uh, that one couple, and I don't know who the couple is, so you don't have to worry worry that I know who you are. Uh, He just said, said, this couple said while inviting him for Christmas, oh, we just want to make sure the singles are all looked after. That's condescension. That's not hospitality. No, you need to invite them because you treasure Jesus and they belong to Jesus. If you've been reading Pastor Allen's devotionals for this Sunday morning, he talked about how truth and love work together as two witnesses. This is all truth. The hospitality is the love setting in which this truth that I've talked about becomes alive. The goal is to form deep relationships with these singles. And many of you know that Peter van der it plays that role in our lives. We've known Peter for over 31 years. And Peter has been an unbelievable blessing. First of all, he's been a great blessing to Sham and me as a married couple. One of the ways he's done that, and he's done this differently for each one of us. One of the ways he's done that in our marriage is that he has been, he's been an incredible encourager to Shem. Uh, and I have the blessing of being married to a radiant, joyful woman, to a large extent because of Peter's encouragement in her life. He's been a wonderful encouragement to me in my ministry. And his gift of evangelism and mine in teaching have been able to work together to touch lives that either one of us alone might not have been able to. And then he's be, he was a blessing to our two ch- children, and now to our five grandchildren. And by the way, he receives as much as what well. uh, he's, he's expected as a member of the family. In fact, uh, one time Sham was talking about, mentioned Peter, and Benjamin, who's five years old, said, do you mean our Peter? You know, That's how he refers to him. He refers to him as our Peter. And Noah, who's not even three years old, Sham told me were, she was recently praying one night for all the family, or she looked after them. Twice he said to her, don't forget Peter, don't forget Peter. Th- that's the kind of thing that can happen. In, in, the, in the giving and the receiving if we are able to open ourselves. And singles, oh, why don't you take the initiative Have you ever thought of inviting married couples over as opposed to just other singles? Actually, our whole relationship with Peter began that way. He invited us. He didn't even invite us. I was away in India. He invited Sham and the two kids over when they were seven and five, I think. And that actually was the beginning of the relationship. And there's some practical benefits too. There might be nothing like a three-hour exposure to a bunch of rambunctious kids and parents trying desperately to get them to behave, and cleaning up after them, like than that to send you home at the end of that day, curling before the fireplace with a book in your hand, saying, God bless you, I'm very happy to be where I am. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay to feel that way too. But but seriously though, seriously, you learn a lot too. Uh, A married couple in Boston who opened their home to me, and happened to be transferred to Toronto when I came to Toronto, and therefore was able to continue that relationship with them. I saw how they raised children. I saw how they spoke to one another. Had many, many conversations with them, and God painted a picture of a kind of marriage that I wanted to have as well. And and they are still good friends of ours over the years. So let's kind of sum it all up. Here's what we learned so far, right? Marriage for Moses and Jesus and Paul, but this is the truth. The love that provides the setting for this truth to come alive is this final challenge. Christ is calling both singles and marrieds to live out the magnificent truth that the family of God by spiritual regeneration is the ultimate, eternal, and foundational family far more significant than the family of God through procreation. And how we do this? Through the ministry of hospitality that includes each other. Father, thank you so much for your grace to us, for the unchanging, eternal, and wise guidelines that are found in your word. And I, I, I just really pray for a baptism of the spirit of love in our congregation so that, that that community setting of love can be provided in which this truth will come alive. In Jesus' name, Amen. My blessing for you is very simple. It is what I desire for myself to provide that, that context of love in which the truth becomes alive. And may you, may you esteem Jesus highly. May the Spirit of God open your eyes to see Jesus during this Lenten season. And because you esteem Him highly, may you esteem every member of the body of Christ. Go in Jesus' name.